Welcome to episode one of the Yes Music podcast, one fan's exploration of the world's greatest progressive rock band. I'm your host, Kevin Mulrine, and I'd just like to say before we get going today that I'm really excited about the feedback I've already received about the podcast, even before it's really launched, on yesfans.com, and if you're not a member there, you really should be, on the site, yesmusicpodcast.com, following and interacting with people on Twitter, through the people who've already subscribed to the podcast, which is fantastic, via email, that's show at yesmusicpodcast.com. So please do keep getting in touch via the site, leaving comments, as some people already have, sending an email, as I say, to show at yesmusicpodcast.com, getting involved on Twitter by following at yesmusicpodcast, and if anyone's brave enough, I've just set up today a way in which you can leave a voicemail message if you call 0844 579 6949 and use the mailbox number 39417, then you can leave a voicemail and I'll try and play it on the show in the future. It'd be fantastic to have some, some contributions from some of the audience. So this week we're going to get straight on with the Yes music. This week we're featuring the 1969 debut album just called Yes. This week's featured Yes musician is bassist extraordinaire Chris Squire, and we're coming on to talking about him a bit later on. So before I get into what my thoughts on the on the first album, as I said in the introductory episode, episode naught, these are my own thoughts. I could go on all day about the books I've read, the forum posts I've read, discussions I've been involved with, particularly on places like yesfans.com, but I've decided to restrict myself at first, anyway, to my own reflections. We may well come back round to the studio albums and bring in those books and forums and so on at that stage. And, of course, hopefully we'll get the conversation going on the website and in Twitter and elsewhere as well. So, back to the music. This is where it all began in 1969, obviously. If you're one of those people who, are, who have only heard, who are used to the classic period, or, as I learned this week, is called the main sequence of albums... Learned that from yesfans.com. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs> so those main sequence, that's main sequence of albums like Fragile, Tales from Topographic Oceans, Close to the Edge, and so on. One of the main differences that you'll see in and you'll hear in this first album, yes, is uh, is one of personnel. There's no Steve Howe. Instead, the the first guitarist of Yes was Peter Banks. There's no Rick Wakeman. Tony Kay was the keyboardist at the time. There's no Alan White. Now, the drummer Bill Bruford was a bit, uh, stayed a bit longer with the band than some of the other members, but uh, Alan White may be the drummer that you're more familiar with. As this podcast is about the music of Yes, I'm only really interested for the moment in how the different personnel affect the sound of the band, the music. I'm not really interested in the politics behind the changes in the lineup, however fascinating these are, and they are fascinating. I'm, I'm very interested in how it all happened. But for the moment, if you're really interested in that, the historical part of the of the band, there are lots of books and websites that you can that you can go to to find that out. So the music, well, with the benefit of over forty years hindsight, it might be very easy to try and read too much into the first the first album, the songs on the first album. It might be easy to to think that we're finding precursors of later Yes style features and so on. But, however, I'd say that the spirit of Yes is certainly present in the first album. Right from the first bars of Beyond and Before, the first track, Chris Squire, the bassist, opening the album with a surprisingly confident bass riff, which sets the tone for the whole record. 
Around the time that, that Yes were starting out, there were some other really startling first albums you can think of in the course of The Crimson King, for example. An amazing splash on the music scene that made. However, I don't think Yes's, Yes's album was so startlingly different from other things that had been around at the time. But I think it do, what it does do is that it introduces us to some of the key concepts of Yes throughout their whole career up until the present day. Elaborate arrangements, the virtuosity of the musicianship, um, for example in Every Little Thing, tight playing, the energy of the playing, combined with beautiful tunes, beautiful melodies for example in something like the track Sweetness. Overall you can certainly hear on this first album that it sounds like yes, whatever that really means. And this is particularly interesting I think as a key component of this album is the guitar playing of Peter Banks. Of course, he only survives for two albums. The first one, yes, that we're talking about today, and next week's topic, Time and a Word. So if we analyse the sound for a minute, what is it that makes it sound like yes, I wonder? Is it John Anderson's vocals? There must be a large component of that. Nobody really sounds like John Anderson. <laughs> and that's a topic we'll come back to several times in this podcast. Is it the Hammond organ of Tony Kay? For example, particularly effective in, in one of the tracks looking around. Could be. Is it the vocal harmonies? That's definitely part of it. Is it Chris Squire's bass playing? But what about the Peter Banks element that we mentioned just a moment ago? As I say, only one more album from Peter Banks and then, then he's gone. One thing for certain though, whatever the lineup of the of Yes at the time, the music is always more than the sum of its parts. And yes, music, I'm sure you'll agree, is special. It's the way that all those elements join together, which is why we're here happy to keep thinking about and listening to the music. More than on some of the later albums, and perhaps you could argue that, that at different times this did happen later in, in Yes's career, but more than some of the immediately next albums, most of the tracks could be described as, as straightforward songs. There, there's less elaborate key and time changes um, as in some of the other albums. There are fewer very long formats like you would have in something like Relayer or Tales from Topographic Oceans. Although if you look at I See You, for example, it's 6 minutes 33 long. Survival is 6 minutes and 1 second long. These weren't going to get played on the radio in their entirety. Not then, and probably not now either. Yes didn't quite have the, the, the quasi-classical movement structure of, of, of songs which started on, uh, on albums like the Yes album, for example, and, and, and further on. But Survival, for example, on this album has distinctly different sections, and the Every Little Thing cover of the Beatles track, I think, foreshadows some of the technically brilliant playing and arrangement of later cover versions like America, which itself arguably leads to full-blown treatments of later albums. In Every Little Thing I particularly like the way that, that the, the Day Tripper Beatles riff creeps into the introduction. In the same way as in America we've got Leonard Bernstein's America <laughs> from West Side Story appearing in the in the later Simon and Garfunkel cover. It's worth listening out for this gem on Yesterday's, it's a great track, as well as the various fantastic live versions from later years. So this, this referencing or borrowing from different types of music and uh, different places crops up late, much later as well. For example, on drama, 
Jeff Downs, who's now of course back with the band on keyboards, uses some church organ music and various other influences that creep in there as well. So has this album got the, the mysticism and the astral references and so on that, that, that Yes became famous for? Well, perhaps not so much in the music, but the lyrics certainly point the way towards, towards this style, particularly in tracks like Beyond and Before. So I think the themes are certainly there. Perhaps that was the influence of John Anderson. Not sure. Another influence, though, that there definitely, as you can see very clearly in uh, the album Yes, was the jazz influence. Definitely some improvisation going on there, particularly in, in tracks like I See You. There's a great section there from Peter Banks and Bill Bruford where they're playing really extemporising and, and using those jazz influences. I think extemporising, improvisation, later on in the band's career is, is a key element, particularly live, but perhaps not the jazz influence that we get at this at this stage, and maybe that's Peter Banks' influence. When Steve Howe took over the guitar, maybe we got more classical guitar influences in there. Folk guitar perhaps came in due to his style. But at the moment on this album, you can definitely feel that jazz influence through a number of the tracks. I mentioned Bill Bruford there on drums. Bill Bruford was one of my earliest influences on the drums. I did play the drums for a bit. And it was his creativity, his innovative approach. He was never happy to lay down a simple beat, as you can hear, <laughs> through most of the tracks on Yes. He was always looking for ways to reflect the character of even the simplest song, playing with the other musicians, not accompanying them like drummers sometimes do, not working against them. And of course this is because he was a consummate musician as well as a drummer. I'm not making a distinction necessarily between the two, but certainly he was a composer, as you can see, and a musician, as you can see in his later work, for example, with Earthworks. Anderson's vocals, of course, as we've already mentioned, very distinctive, very ethereal at times. I mean, he's got different modes on this album very much. I, the, the, the beauty of something like the way he sings in Sweetness, as opposed to the strength of something like Looking Around. And also, of course, he's, he's key in those vocal harmonies. The vocal harmonies are very important, of course, and in something like Harold Land, they, the, the lyrics may, and the topic may be a bit Beatles-esque, but the harmonies are quite different. The Yes vocal harmony style doesn't really borrow from, from bands like the Beatles, I don't think. I think it's, it's, it was quite new at the time. So what about Tony Kay and his contribution to the sound of the album? I have to say, first of all, about Tony Kay that I do think he gets a bad press. Um, some say that he suffers in comparison to later keyboard players, especially Rick Wakeman. And, of course, the Rick Wakeman, the classically trained multi-synth extravaganzas that he went in for, is the style that a lot of people feel defines the Yes sound. However, I think it's unfair and probably unnecessary to, to criticise the technical proficiency of, of Tony Kay. For example, if you listen to something like Harold Land on the organ and his piano playing in Yesterday and Today, I think he's got the balance exactly right. He's in perfect balance with the other musicians. There's never anything overbearing. It's always appropriate, perfectly executed. And I think that's also true on the few later albums he was also involved with. Maybe it's true that he can't play as many notes as quickly as Rick Wakeman or others, but does this really matter in the context of the music here? I'd say not. The early Yes sound, I would say, is defined as much by Tony Kay's playing as by any other member of the group. 
So to sum up the first album then. Perhaps there's less of the yes mysticism apart from the lyrics. Perhaps there's less of the long song forms. Perhaps there's less of the quasi-orchestral arrangements. But still, I think it's a great album. I think it works brilliantly as a collection of varied songs, some beautiful, some powerful melodies. It's exciting and complex in its arrangements of some of the tracks. And definitely we can see the subtle and virtuosic musicianship of the players. So now it's time for the Featured Musician of the Week. This isn't a long section, as I will be coming back several times to to each member that we talk about. And when I was talking about the album, I didn't really mention Chris Squire a lot in the Featured section above, because he's the Featured Musician this week. Of course, as you probably know, if you're a Yes fan already, Chris Squire is known as the Keeper of the Flame, and this is because he's appeared on every Yes album. In polls, he's often in the top ten of bassists, and he's certainly one of the greatest in rock history. If you imagine the stereotype that some people have of rock bassists, you know, quiet, unassuming, dependable, solid, shunning the limelight, you could think of someone like John Deacon of Queen, who's become something of a recluse now, this is categorically not Chris Squire. If you want specific evidence of this, dig out a copy or have a look on YouTube for 9012 Live, the live shows based on the 90125 album of the 80s, originally, and I think I've got somewhere an original video cassette copy of it. And there's a point, uh, someone can give me the specific reference, I'd be very grateful, but one point I remember when Chris Squire pretends to be pushing the, the guitarist Trevor Rabin closer, closer and closer to the edge of the stage, Sorry about the pun there. He gets very close to the edge, and then just as he's about to fall off, Chris Squire lets him go away. 9012 Live, also the solos, which is a fairly obscure album. 9012 Live, the solos, also has a a startling bass solo from Chris Squire um, based around an, an extemporization of Amazing Grace. And also, he's someone who who has a lot of sense of humour, I think. Um, the, for example, playing his harmonica in uh, in recent live performances. Is it is it in I've Seen All Good People? I'm sure you know. Let me know. So his bass playing style, typically he's got his Rickenbacker bass with the treble control fully up. So immediately it sounds quite unlike most other rock bass players. He's never content to sit in the background playing the obvious line right from the first album, as mentioned above. He creates elaborate counter-melodies, some of the most complex I've come across in, in rock music, in progressive rock music, and, for example, in the solo section of, of Heart of the Sunrise. He can also, though, maintain huge stadium-filling grooves, for example, in songs like The Rhythm of Love. And finally... If he's asked to, to create a, an ostinato repeating pattern, he does that perfectly as well, for example, in, for some people, the, the, the key yes track of all time, Awaken. He also sings backing vocals and very occasionally has taken the lead vocals, and at the same time, playing these incredible bass parts, he's someone with an enormous amount of talent. He's also always contributed to the writing of the songs. Half of the tracks, for example, on Yes on this first album were written or co-written by Squire. So whatever your favourite Yes musician, no one could deny Chris Squire's bass credentials. And certainly without him we wouldn't have the Yes we know and love now.
So that's about it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Next week we move on to talk about the next studio album, Time and a Word, and the featured musician is Peter Banks, as this was his last album with the band. So the homework for next week is to listen to Time in a Word and also to get involved with the podcast at www.yesmusicpodcast.com to get involved on Twitter, as you know, at Yes Music Podcast on Twitter. Send me an email, tell me what you liked and what you didn't like about the first episode to show at yesmusicpodcast.com or finally leave a voicemail on 0844 579 6949 and use the mailbox number 39417. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Please do subscribe if you're listening on the website. And just remember, until next time, whatever your progressive rock question, the answer is yes.